Welcome to the workshop on the legacy of 1917 um, that Richard and I were asked to do for this conference. Um, and we originally thought of it as like a teach-in um, in the sense of preparing actually for <clears throat> uh, the plenary panel discussion at the International Convention in Chicago in April and also subsequent events we might do over the course of the year in Platypus discussing the centenary of 1917 this year in 2017. Um, so Richard and I sort of had a rough division of labor kind of in mind in terms of how we would tag team this issue. Um, I myself, just to start off, um, want to say that I found it very difficult to try to lay out in a 15-minute presentation um, all the points that I wanted to make regarding the Russian Revolution in 1917. And I wanted to say something about um, the relationship between this teach-in and the primary Marxist reading group pedagogy that we do in Platypus. Uh, so one of the things very early on that we decided to do in Platypus was to approach the Russian Revolution indirectly by way of the German Revolution. Um, in other words, rather than assuming uh, the priority of Lenin in the revolutionary era of the First World War, um, we actually tried to establish Lenin's importance by way of the larger second international milieu out of which he came. And so we privileged Rosa Luxemburg and the German revolutionary experience uh, as a way of like via negativa, um, what needed to happen that didn't happen, negatively what conditioned the outcome of the Russian Revolution, namely the failure of the German Revolution, which was in fact also the failure of the Russian Revolution. So we don't usually, for instance, read Lenin's writings from 1917, other than State and Revolution. We don't read any of the concrete political writings on uh, the events of 1917. Um, so we sort of lead up to the Russian Revolution and then deal with the aftermath, uh, specifically through um, Lenin's left-wing communism and infantile disorder and Trotsky's The Lessons of October. So we, we kind of deal with it as foreshadowing and as hindsight rather than in the moment. Because uh, even the state and revolution is not really about the Russian Revolution. It's a, it's a more abstract treatment of the question of revolution. I think Lars Lee called it Lenin's book report, right, the state and revolution. And he's just sort of doing a book report on Marx and Engels on the state, essentially. Um, <clears throat> so that's uh, the sort of general framework within which we're operating here, that this is actually a deficit in the internal education of Platypus, like discussion of the actual Russian Revolution, the actual course of events, and the usual um, historiographic issues. Uh, we also, you know, looking ahead to 2017 last year, uh, we knew that we would have to observe the centenary of 1917 in 2017, but that... Uh, the fortunes or misfortunes of that centenary were going to be greatly affected by present-day political circumstances. So, for instance, 
Um, I, you know, prognosed the possibility of Trump winning the election, uh, but there was a lot of skepticism in Platypus, and rightly so, uh, about that eventuality. So one of the things that we talked about last year was how 1917 will look 100 years later under Hillary Clinton versus under Donald Trump. Um, Because, in fact, uh, we anticipated a kind of spurious or specious um, renaissance of the left, if you will, reanimation of the corpse uh, in response to Trump. In other words, that, um, that the response to Trump might give a kind of false, radical elan to the observance of the centenary of 1917. Whereas, if Hillary were elected, it would appear that the legacy of 1917 remained safely buried. In other words, the no threat of fascism, no need for socialism, we just carry on. Um, so that was another consideration. Uh, in fact, since the election, I have struggled to um, <clears throat> consider how uh, recent events have really changed much in terms of how we talk about the legacy of 1917. Uh, perhaps the election was not particularly um, consequential with regard to this consideration. Um, all right, so that's the, the framing for this event um, as a kind of quasi-internal um, kind of a makeup session in terms of Platypus's own pedagogy and internal education. And now I'll just uh, get into the remarks that I wanted to make to, to kick off the discussion. Um, <clears throat> so the first thing that I would propose is uh, that the Russian Revolution, 1917, from the standpoint of its own actors, namely uh, the Bolsheviks, um, but also the Mensheviks, the the Russian revolutionaries of 1917, uh, having come up in the Second International uh, in the decades before World War I, um, from their perspective, uh, the collapse of Tsarism in World War I was not necessarily how they uh, would have pictured the revolution. So in certain respects, uh, 1917 is an accident of history, uh, namely that the Russian Revolution is entirely about uh, the collapse of the Tsarist regime due to the defeat of Russia by Germany in World War I. Um, the perspective of the Second International was that, you know, the perspective that Lenin and Trotsky and Rosa Luxemburg, all as Russian revolutionaries, um, <clears throat> was that proletarian socialism would lead the working class to establish the dictatorship of the proletariat, and that through what they called themselves before World War I, revolutionary social democracy, through that revolutionary social democracy, they would lead the petty bourgeois masses in a democratic revolution. And this is true not only in <clears throat> Russia, but also in Germany, which was, we have to remind ourselves, an autocratic uh, Prussian Empire state. The revolutionary social democratic parties of the Second International would take power and establish a global dictatorship of the proletariat. The Second International, as I mentioned last night, um, itself uh, understood itself simply as the international. In other words, they didn't call themselves the Second International. They were just simply the international. And they considered themselves the beginning of world government. World War I 
seem to be a setback to all of that, to their overall perspective of how, you know, since 1848, the working class had emerged as the vanguard of the masses in democratic discontents and democratic radical politics and democratic revolution. And that furthermore, um, within the working class, socialism became a predominant ideology over the course of the 19th century. And finally, all of that movement was crowned by the leadership of the workers' movement for socialism by Marxists, which is a relatively late development. In other words, that was not the case in the first international. It certainly was not the case in any respect. Um, you know, Marx and Engels' colleagues in the Communist League of 1848 had no leadership role. Um, they were just a, a, a tendency. So that forward advancing line of development, basically from 1848 and especially from the 1870s up to World, World War I, seemed to be set back by World War I. Um, the petty bourgeois masses, including large numbers of workers, supported the various <coughs> governments in defense of their countries in World War I. <clears throat> but Lenin, Rosa Luxemburg, and Trotsky, among others at the time, regarded the war as not merely an opportunity for, but indeed the obligation of proletarian socialist revolution. They held the Social Democratic Parties of the Second International, the actually constituted working class political agencies for socialism, or even just merely for democracy, to be, in a sense, responsible for the war. This was itself a revolutionary demand. They advocated that the working class in the context of the war was obligated to take over society as the only way to achieve peace and really to preserve civilization. Uh, Rosa Luxemburg in the Junius pamphlet written during the war um, uh, recalled the old Engels phrase, socialism or barbarism, to evoke this. Literally, at the end of World War I, it was widely acknowledged at the time, and not merely on the left or among socialists, that there were only two options to the aftermath of World War I, Lenin's piece, World Communism, or Woodrow Wilson's piece of a decolonized liberal democracy. <clears throat> Neither was, in fact, achieved. Uh, however, an aspiring Pax Americana struggled to be realized through subsequent events, most notably through World War II, which was really a continuation of World War I. <clears throat> Lenin and his comrades did not think World War I was particularly auspicious for achieving socialism, but they refused to use the war as an excuse to, th to shirk responsibility for the struggle for socialism, as others, most notably Karl Kautsky, the leading Marxist theorist of the Second International, had done. World War I was, of course, not merely a crisis for the workers of the world or for their <clears throat> politics in the Second International or for social democracy, but a crisis for capitalism and indeed for a bourgeois civilization as a whole. Today, we still live with the pathologies of the disastrous consequences of World War I. The crisis is still with us, very much. It is difficult for us to remember the optimism of the late 19th and early 20th century world that was shattered by the war. It is even more difficult for us to remember how the political optimism of socialism at the time participated in this optimism, but pushed it forward, indicting capitalism as clearly woefully inadequate to the potentials of society. The subsequent events of the 20th century have tended to affirm, uh, rather, 
that the op optimistic world of the late 19th century was only threatened by worse, unforeseen horrors such as fascism and Stalinism, as well as less dramatically the mean, austere world of the Great Depression and the responses to it, such as the welfare state. Not only mm -hmm. Marxists and socialists, including anarchists, but others, liberals, wanted much more in the pre-World War I world, and all abandoned their desires in the course of the 20th century, settling for not only much less, but also for much worse. And we've naturalized that development. <clears throat> for Lenin and his comrades, such as Rosa Luxemburg and Trotsky, the prospect for world, social, world proletarian socialist revolution coming out of the crisis of the war was a last chance, at least the last chance for the workers' movement for socialism that was constituted and grew and developed in the generation prior to the war. As Rosa Luxemburg had put it, the workers' movement for socialism's response to the war placed the previous 40 years in doubt. Actually, it ended up putting history up to that point far deeper in doubt. So what were the perspectives of the World War I, pre-World War I revolutionary socialist movement that, however desperately, tried to redeem themselves in the revolutions in Russia, Germany, and elsewhere at the end of the war? How did they inform the Bolsheviks in the Russian Revolution in 1917? Um, so in consideration of their, their own perspectives in the revolution, um, I want to distinguish between uh, two uh, points of view. Uh, in the moment, in other words, really during the war and up through 1917, what the actors at the time thought, those same actors in immediate hindsight, in other words, what the revolution looks like to Lenin and Trotsky in uh, subsequent years. Um, and I want to say that both of those, like their consciousness in the moment and their immediate retrospective consciousness, both have to be uh, held, as well as the differences between them, have to be held in mind, or we have to struggle to try to hold them in mind in our consideration of the legacy of 1917 today. Um, so those are two perspectives, 1917 and the immediate hindsight. So for instance, Lenin in... Uh, left-wing communism and infantile disorder, and Lenin in um, uh, you know, Our Revolution, Looking Back, um, which we published in the Platypus Review, a translation of that, um, from 1920, and Trotsky in The Lessons of October in 1924. Um, <clears throat> so those are two perspectives. Now I also want to bring in two different actors, two different revolutionary actors in 1917 namely the masses and the party. All right, so we have like the masses in revolution and we have the party in the revolution, the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party and the Bolshevik faction of that party in the revolution. Okay, so two perspectives, two actors, and supposedly two revolutions. The February Revolution and the October Revolution. So one of the problems that we face in thinking about the February Revolution and the October Revolution is that the February Revolution is usually identified with the masses, with the spontaneous rising of the masses. And the October Revolution is usually associated with a preconceived uh, revolutionary conspiratorial plan by the Bolsheviks. Right? So February is about the masses and October is about the party. 
Um, but this is actually a, a falsified historiography. This tends to be the Stalinist histori historiography, which still prevails today. Um, and so that's seen, for instance, in calling the February Revolution the Democratic Revolution and calling the October Revolution the Socialist Revolution. Um, but this mistakenly identifies the masses with democracy and the party with socialism. In fact, this agrees. This, this perspective, the Stalinist historiography, tends to agree with the slander against the Bolsheviks that the October Revolution was a Bolshevik coup. The February Revolution, in fact, was not democratic. The czarist state remained in place uh, with only a democratic veneer of regime change. And the October Revolution was not socialist, but in fact only potentially democratic. It smashed the state, but did not replace it with the dictatorship of the proletariat, which the Bolsheviks understood could only be international, namely global. So in fact, it's only the October Revolution, from Lenin and Trotsky's point of view, um, that begins the democratic revolution in Russia. The February Revolution is just the collapse of the czarist regime. It's just getting rid of the czar. The whole state apparatus remains in place, and there's just a provisional government as window dressing on it. Um, this is illustrated, this, the falsification of this history uh, by separating February and October in this way, by calling February... Which were actually March and November. Huh? Which were actually March and November. Well, March and November in the rest of the world, but in Russia, February and October. And that's usually the way we refer to it is February and October. Um, the falsification of this parsing out, this attempt to parse out February and October, the February is the masses, it's democratic, it's spontaneous, and October is the party, and it's conspiratorial, and it's undemocratic, or maybe it's socialist, right, depending on whether you're positive or negative about it. Um, this is illustrated by what comes between February and October, and that's namely the July days in 1917. Um, to talk about what the July days meant, I'm actually going to refer to Rosa Luxemburg in the last writings of her life. Um, from the similarly misnamed, so we could call the October Revolution the Bolshevik Revolution, but that's actually a kind of misnomer and also is part of the slander against the Bolsheviks. In other words, that's a coup d'etat. Uh, similarly, December 1918 and January 1919 in Germany is usually known as the Spartacist Uprising, and that's also a slander. Um, because, in fact, uh, like the July days... In fact, uh, this is what Rosa Luxemburg analogized December 1918 and January 1919 to July 1917 in Russia. There was a spontaneous rising of the masses that the party considered premature and the party criticized, but the party also joined and um, sought to prevent from becoming a complete disaster. So uh, Rosa Luxemburg's Spartacus League did participate in the events of December 1918, 1919, but considered them to be premature, um, but still did not abandon the masses uh, in, in their revolt. Um, so the masses revolted, and the party judged it to be premature, but the party still participated, however critically. Um, such critical participation in fact, was still true of October 1917. In other words, it's not only true of July 1917, but it's also true of October 19, 
17. Um, Luxembourg put it this way uh, in her speech to the founding conference of the German Communist Party in December of 1918. Uh, she said that the working class coming to power in revolution will always appear to be both too early and too late. And that it's not something that can be timed like the starter's pistol at the beginning of a race. Right? It's always going to appear to be too early and too late. Um, and not only in the immediate temporal moment, but also historically. Uh, now, the problem is that, of course, there's only one example of the working, workers coming to power. There's only one example historically of the working class coming to power, um, you know, and that's October 1917, which I'll come back to. And in many respects, we can say that uh, this, the October Revolution in 1917, was both too early and too late. Uh, it was too early and too late, both in Russia, Europe, and the world of 1917, and in world history. The main criticisms of the Bolsheviks in October 1917 um, was that they were either too early, uh, Russia or the world was not yet ready for proletarian socialism in 1917, or too late in the sense that already by 1917, capitalism had made the radical democratic Jacobin regime that the Bolsheviks seemed to represent an already antiquated and obsolete phenomenon. New leftism and postmodernism more recent uh, historical sensibility, have made out the prospect of a working-class socialist political regime and a worker's state completely anachronistic and antiquarian, and have retrospectively projected this obsolescence back onto the October Revolution itself. But the February Revolution, we should remember, not just the October Revolution, but the February 1917 Revolution, had already dressed itself up as a proletarian socialist revolution. The socialist revolutionaries, which were actually the majority of socialists in Russia at the time, not the RSDLP, either the Mensheviks or the Bolsheviks, but the socialist revolutionaries, um, they took over the provisional government after the February Revolution. And, uh, you know, they, like any other socialist, called everyone comrade, and they wore austere uniforms and, you know, carried on. Uh, aesthetically, they were indistinguishable from the Bolshevik regime that took power later. Um, so long before the Bolsheviks led the October Revolution, the February Revolution, even though it was merely a regime change, dressed itself up as socialist. This aping of proletarian socialism by what Marxists <laughs> called petty bourgeois democracy, in other words, what did Lenin think of the socialist revolutionaries, many of whom considered themselves to be Marxists, but of course undogmatic Marxists, unlike the RSDLP, but the Socialist Revolutionaries, a lot of them considered themselves to be Marxists. A lot of them thought that the working class was the vanguard of the revolution. They had a lot of superficial agreement that we'd have a hard time distinguishing from the Social Democrats of the Second International at the time. Um, this aping of proletarian socialism by the petty bourgeois Democrats, because that's what Lenin thought the Socialist Revolutionaries were, that they were just petty or, bourgeois Democrats. Or rooted largely in the peasantry. And the left wing of the SR is subsequently split and joined the Bolsheviks. Let me say something about them being rooted supposedly in the peasantry. They weren't. What they were were, like the RSDLP, they were a socialist intelligentsia. 
they liked the peasants. They come out of Narodnism. They definitely <laughs> romanticized exactly. the peasants. But they only represent the peasants in a highly mediated way. Absolutely. Right. They're not themselves peasants. They are socialist intellectuals like the uh, RSDLP, like Lenin and Luxembourg and Trotsky. Right. There's socialist intelligentsia. Um, but the reason that they were bigger than the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks was that there were a lot more peasants in Russia than workers still. I would say they were bigger, they were more popular as an intellectual current <clears throat> uh, because they were more opportunistic and they were softer. In other words, they were more appealing because you didn't want to be a dogmatic Marxist. Right? So you know, just like today, you know, the soft left is always bigger than the hard left. Um, but it's, it's a little bit of a peculiarity because, of course, in a place like Germany, you didn't have that kind of phenomenon. In other words, everyone who called themselves socialists were in the SPD and thought of themselves as Marxists, except a tiny, like, anarchist fringe. Uh, in Russia, it's the opposite. Right. Um, but we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, and indeed, one of the legacies of the 1917 revolution, paradoxically, is that this aping of proletarian socialism, this mimicking of proletarian socialism by petty bourgeois Democrats, only grew in the 20th century. Right, so the Iraqi Baathists were all socialists and comrades and blah blah blah. Um, for example, <clears throat> um, all the way up to relatively recently. I mean, I would say very strongly up through the 80s, like Muammar Gaddafi. Um, but even in the Bolivarian Revolution of Hugo Chavez, you still see this. You still see petty bourgeois democracy calling itself socialist. Um, all right, so the issue then uh, that we have to get to that 1917 parses out through its events is the non-identity but the relationship between the masses, the working class, and the party. And again, one way of thinking about that is the non-identity of the democratic revolution and the potential for socialism the non-identity of proletarian socialist revolution and, indeed, the necessity of the dictatorship of the proletariat. Right, so there's uh, a critical relation of these. Um, so I want to turn to, to Trotsky on this point um, and, and the way he approaches these things. For Trotsky, in the Lessons of October... Uh, which I'm going to be leaning on a great deal, but also in The History of the Russian Revolution, written in 1930, and in an article that he wrote uh, that is typical of his writings of the 1930s, in 1937, Stalinism and Bolshevism, looking at the 20-year anniversary of the 1917 revolution. Uh, Trotsky identified what he called the critical role of the party. Critical in the sense of a crucial, necessary role, but also critical in the sense of a conscious political leadership as playing a critical role with respect to the revolution. In other words, that uh, there's a critique of the revolution in the role that Marxists sought to play. Hence, uh, there's a critical non-identity at work here, a critical relation of the Socialist Party, the working class, and the masses in revolutionary politics. Revolution is not an event, but a process. 
the bourgeois democratic revolution is itself a process that's still ongoing, I would argue, but that's centuries old. Uh, the workers' struggle for socialism since the early 19th century industrial revolution continued the bourgeois democratic revolution, but also came to contradict it, again, in a process. Um, and in that process, right, one of the ways that, that uh, Marxism tried to address that contradiction that developed is this contradiction between the need for proletarian socialism and petty bourgeois democratic discontents in capitalism. So the latter, democracy, uh, actually propels capitalism. It keeps it going. So capitalism has always and still does and probably will continue to uh, exhibit democratic revolutions. Every once in a while there's going to be a democratic revolution somewhere, including in the advanced capitalist countries. So May 1968 in France, as an example. Uh, it's democratic discontents boil over. And so that democratic revolution is always there as a potentiality. And the question is, how might socialism push beyond the democratic revolution, the political crisis that is always an opportunity for capitalism to reconstitute itself? So the necessity, what Marx called the necessity of the dictatorship of the proletariat, is now obscure. It's a very obscure concept, and it's the source of great anxiety. What does it mean? Uh, does it mean the dictatorship of the working class? Does it mean the dictatorship of the political party for socialism? Perhaps it means both and neither, in, in fact. Um, what is clear is that it is not, on the other hand, so I mentioned the masses, the working class, and the party. What is clear is that the dictatorship of the proletariat is not a dictatorship of the masses. All right, that's not the conception. It's not a dictatorship of the masses. In fact, we already have a historical experience of the dictatorship of the masses, and that's Bonapartism. Um, namely, you know, a political regime that seeks to institute the interests of the masses as opposed to the interests of the working class. We already have that as an example. Um, so, for instance, in 1917 in Russia, so I mentioned the SRs, so Kerensky, right, he's the head of the provisional government, he's a socialist revolutionary, he's an SR. Um, he was not only a Democrat, Right, so he thinks of himself as a socialist, but in fact, you, know, you could say, well, he leads a democratic revolution uh, after the collapse of czarism in February 1917. He was not only a Democrat, but indeed, he was a Bonapartist, actually. Um, albeit a weak one. Albeit a weak one. He still was one. Um, conversely, Lenin, so if we take, you know, these are our protagonists, if you will, Kerensky and Lenin, um, Lenin was not only an advocate of a proletarian socialist dictatorship, whether we understand that as a party dictatorship or as a working class dictatorship. He was not only an advocate of that, um, and hence, in a certain sense, a Bonapartist. We can say, you know, right, maybe he's a, a kind of a Jacobin uh, in that sense and maybe a Bonapartist in some respect. But Lenin was also a Democrat, and in many respects, uh, much more of a Democrat than Kerensky. Um, so one thing that I'd like to put out there, which is certainly contestable and would be hotly disputed, um, is that 
The October 1917 revolution did not overthrow a democracy and try to institute a socialist dictatorship of the proletariat. There was no democracy that was overthrown by the Bolsheviks and by the left SRs because they didn't act alone. Um, it, was not, uh, it was not that. And not only that, it was not going to become that. In other words, uh, what I would put out there, at least in the perspective of people like Lenin and Trotsky, uh, the choice was not that Russia become a liberal democracy or a dictatorship of the proletariat. Those were not the options. Right. Why? For the very simple reason that actually liberal democracy from a Marxist perspective is not liberal democracy. In other words, liberal democracy after 1848 is Bonapartism. In other words, there is no liberal democracy. What there is is a capitalist state, which is very different. It might have certain features of liberal democracy, certain historical holdovers from the bourgeois democratic revolution, but it's not actually a liberal democracy. So it's not just Russia that we're talking about. We're talking about, is it possible? Similarly, the Weimar Republic, the Weimar Republic that came out of the German Revolution in 1918, 1919, was not a liberal democracy. That you could point to by the continuation of the... Um, Younger Prussian aristocratic state apparatus that was never smashed in that period at all. So there was no democratic revolution in Germany either. And in fact, you know, people talk about the weakness of the, uh, the Weimar Republic, but they usually talk about it as the weakness of liberal democracy threatened by both communists and fascists. But it was not weak because it was uh, a, a fledgling liberal democracy threatened by extremists on the left and the right. It was weak because it was an unstable form of Bonapartism. Uh, so the choice was not liberal democracy or proletarian dictatorship. The choice was a Russian nationalist dictatorship by the black hundreds. In other words, there were Russian nationalists waiting to take over after czarism collapsed. Uh, that was the real option, and in fact, uh, you see that with like what people call now neo-czarism under Putin. In other words, after the Stalinist experience, what do you have? You don't have liberal democracy in Russia. Um, but again, in the back of your mind, I want you to remember the United States, Britain, France, Germany, Austria. These are not liberal democracies. They're not. They're species of Bonapartism, at least in the eyes of someone like Lenin. Right, they're capitalist states. So there was not that option. Uh, rather, what there was was the choice of one kind of Bonapartist state or world socialist revolution, the dictatorship of the proletariat. Which brings me around to uh, my point, namely, what is the actual lesson of 1917? What do we have, what's the legacy of 1917? What was 1917 that we have to look back and consider? You know, what actually happened? Um, the lesson of uh, 1917, and really, the revolution begins in October 1917. It doesn't really begin in February 1917. February 1917, they just get rid of the czar. The revolution begins in October 1917. The democratic revolution begins in October 1917. The smashing of the state. 
Um, so what's the lesson? The lesson is that a working class proletarian mass socialist party can, can smash the state and constitute a, a new state. Um, and you know, we might think that what came out of that and from the very beginning was really just a kind of version of a Bonapartist state that is merely a rival to the existing avowedly capitalist Bonapartist state, whether czarist or ostensibly liberal democratic or supposedly rad radical democratic. Um, so I talked about Hugo Chavez. Uh, but in fact, actually, petty bourgeois nationalist state. October 1917 shows not that socialism or even the dictatorship of the proletariat is possible, as neither was achieved. But what it does show is that the working class can constitute a political party that can smash the state and reconstitute the state, that it can establish not only a government, but in fact a, a form of state. And we can leave aside the question of whether that form of state is just a state capitalist state, or you know, we can just leave all of that aside, but we can say, actually, in Russia, there was a mass working class party that was able to do this take power. <clears throat> but this was achieved only briefly uh, because that working class smashing and reconstitution of the state um, liquidated itself in the course of the 1920s in and through the Communist Party itself, in and through Communist Party misleadership uh, under the old Bolsheviks, namely Stalin and other old Bolsheviks. Uh, the USSR uh, became what Trotskyists, what Trotsky called a bureaucratically deformed workers' state that actually exhibited the usual petty bourgeois character of Bonapartism. Petty bourgeois does not mean sociologically a regime of small property holders, but rather the constrained political horizon of petty bourgeois democracy. In the USSR, established by the limits imposed from outside, but it, the isolation of the revolution, but accepted. Um, within trying to build supposed socialism in one country, which was ne necessarily a kind of a state capitalist project of one kind or another. The bureaucracy, what Trotsky called the bureaucracy, um, had multiple origins. Certainly some of it was uh, former czarist, some of it was typical petty bourgeois, but a large portion of the bureaucracy in the Soviet Union uh, was of working class origin. In other words, these were people who came up through the party, in fact, bourgeoisified themselves as members of the party, and then served a typical petty bourgeois function uh, in, uh, in a bureaucratic state. Um, so the bureaucracy came out of the socialist intelligentsia of a more or less bourgeois character. It came out of former czarist state officials and traditional bureaucratic types but it also came out of the working class. Um, and that bureaucracy uh, was an agency of a form of nationalist politics. And we've, we see the rest of the 20th century, there are many examples of this uh, throughout the world, especially in the post-colonial world. Um, Stalinism was the ideological adaptation to the limits of the revolution. Uh, and ideological not merely in its theory, but in its practice. 
And this allowed a multitude of various nationalist parties and regimes in the 20th century to declare themselves as socialist, with the USSR as an as a, uh, example. Uh, while remaining uh, much more clearly than, you know, because we might debate the state capitalist character of the Soviet Union, but uh, all the regimes that aped the Soviet Union were clearly state capitalist, you know, whether Nasserite, Egypt, or etc. And clearly petty bourgeois Bonapartist, even if the officer corps that took power in various countries were not small shopkeepers. Again, that's not what's meant by petty bourgeois. Um, at the very least, when they didn't call themselves socialists, they at least called themselves revolutionary, which of course they were. But in the merely usual bourgeois political sense of regime change. Um, so they all came to power through coup d'etats of various kinds and regime change and you know, didn't really engage in a thorough uh, reconstitution of the state usually, although maybe over the course of decades they did reconstitute the state. They were thus also more or less popular and democratic. But the revolution that we see in the 20th century that mimics the Russian Revolution uh, remained revolution of capitalism. So it has not been proven that the proletarianized working class can, in fact, be a political agent for overcoming capitalism and of putting society on the path to socialism. That hasn't been proven at all. That speculative proposition of Marxism has no proof in favor of it. So the only thing that October 1917 proved was that the working class can, in fact, lead the masses in making a political revolution. And that is itself a great achievement. Um, at a platypus event that we put on in Halifax, a, a panel discussion on the meaning of political party for the left, uh, the Canadian socialist scholar Leo Panitch pointed out that the high period of historical Marxism from the 1870s to the 1920s, namely the era of the Second International and the early Third International before the latter's self-liquidation in Stalinism, was indeed the very first time and the only time that a subaltern class has ever constituted itself as a political force in history. Ever. Uh, it's also the last time, meaning you know, it's, the, it's the first time and only time and not since then. So the only concrete achievement of that first and only time that the subaltern class has ever constituted itself as a political force in history is, guess what? The Russian Revolution. It's the only actual political act that that first and only subaltern political movement ever achieved. <clears throat> it was a temporary and slight achievement, but an achievement nonetheless. We need, at least anyone taking the prospect of socialism seriously, and certainly anyone taking the historical self-understanding of Marxism seriously, uh, we would need to aspire to achieve at least that much, but actually a great deal more, a great deal more. Um, so what we can say about Marxism, the Second International, you know, proletarian working class socialist movement and its one achievement is that it failed. It did fail. But all other rival movements in the last 200 years have also failed. And in fact, they failed a lot more miserably. Right, 
So I guess what I'm, what I'm to sum up, um, there was an accident of history that was thrust upon uh, the Second International, the Marxist movement, namely World War I. And only a small minority initially uh, treated that as a political opportunity, however more or less desperate. Um, but they still were able to achieve something, however slight and temporary. All right, so uh, 1917 is paradoxical for all of these reasons, for all of these reasons. Uh, it resists a easy, an easy judgment uh, because of its mixed and multifarious character, both at the time and its results and the way it has been abused in its legacy. Hi, so um, unlike Chris, I, I sort of, we talked about this and I thought Chris would have his remarks ready earlier and I would have time to respond and write something. So I don't have any prepared remarks, but I've uh, tried to think about this issue. And so I'm going to take a somewhat different tack from Chris and not focus on the revolution itself, but rather the problem of the historical memory of the Bolshevik Revolution. In other words, 100 years, a century has passed. And so the question is, what relevance does it have, even, going into the future? I mean, Chris and I both came of age politically at the very, very last moment, sort of when it would have been taken for granted that the Bolshevik Revolution was a central event in world history. Um, I think that as time passes, since, like, the 89-91 moment, that that can no longer be taken for granted as something that people would see as obvious. And one actually has to justify the centrality of the Bolshevik Revolution to world history. And so I'm going to be trying to take as long and as global a perspective. Um, and when I speak about the Bolshevik Revolution or the Russian Revolution, I am speaking of the October Revolution. Uh, and its legacy, because I, I, I think that the problem of February was not that interesting. I, I do think that a, that a comparable and related problem, though a very difficult one to think about, is the relationship of the French Revolution, which was the one previous universal revolution to the Bolshevik Revolution. But the other thing that has to be noted is that while the French Revolution was immediately an event of European importance, and one might say Atlantic importance, it was not immediately an event of world importance, right? It didn't, its events in large parts of the world where people hardly knew what was going, had hardly any knowledge of it. Its events took many, many decades and it affected most of the world through the secondary effects of European colonialism and the Bolshevik Revolution. Hmm. So in that sense, the Bolshevik Revolution is the first real world revolution in history that immediately affected the politics of the whole planet. Um, and so, and because it sort of, I've just been in Asia and I was thinking about sort of Asia and coming to, you know, you go from Bangalore to Vienna, you start thinking about the contrast, but also the similarity of these two places. And 
So on the one hand, it's obvious that they both belong to exactly the same total global world system. I mean, it's never been more obvious, right? It's not like India is less capitalist, or in some ways it seems more capitalist than Austria. But, but then they're part of this world capitalism. But just you, like, you come into this physical environment and you see these beautiful old buildings with karyatids and things like that. And there is like this sort of thought at the back of one's mind, like, well, possibly like a whole kind of tradition of like critical Marxism, etc. It can be this sort of decorative cultural product. In other <laughs> words, you have to ask yourself the question of like what here is necessary and fundamental and what is sort of some memory. I mean, I, I've told this anecdote to several people. When I was in Malaysia, someone told me that in the country that has three times the population of Austria, there's not a single university with a philosophy department. I, so, and you ask, like, okay, you know, we, we in Vladipa speak about the idea of the left being dead, but you would try to imagine, like, well, what would it mean to talk about the Bolshevik Revolution, right, if there weren't any sectarian groups, like, holding up the legacy of the Bolshevik Revolution? That still hasn't happened. There still are these tiny groups, but one can imagine a future not too far distant when they just don't exist anymore, right? And then the question is, how do you uphold the memory of the Bolshevik Revolution as central to world history? So in, in thinking about like, the history of the Bolshevik Revolution, and first I was going to... So, so there, are, I think, are three events that kind of stand out symbolically as kind of sort of a kind of moral triangle representing kind of the sense of catastrophe of the 20th century. Yeah. One is Petrograd, 1917. The other is Auschwitz. And the third is Hiroshima, right? And so I'll go to the, the latter two first. I mean, Auschwitz, and I'm not just speaking about one particular concentration camp in Poland, it symbolizes the capacity for barbarism at the heart of bourgeois culture. Right, which was something that the 19th century thought was being overcome, right? And now there's sort of the sense that there is no guarantee that, right, the, the particular horror of something like Auschwitz is not just the, the violence, not just the murder. It's the sense that it was produced by a highly civilized society, that the progress of civilization. Similarly, Part of like the horror of Hiroshima is the knowledge that it is precisely the development of science, right? It's the development of knowledge of the natural world, of technical progress, that yields not only an increase in the productive capacity of society, but the destructive. So in other words, the promise of the Enlightenment, right, is challenged by these examples of, of regression. In other words, the idea that knowledge and civilization and progress in bourgeois society will lead to a kind of steadily more civilized society when we all very well know it can lead to just unspeakable barbarism and even the end of our species, right? And that, that destructive capacity of capitalism, right, was revealed in the 20th century in a way mm -hmm. that had not been revealed in the 19th. Now, the ambivalence, of course, of the Russian Revolution, it, or the Bolshevik, or Petrograd, however you want to understand it, is that it, it brings the left onto the 
the, the field of world history. In other words, socialism still before 1917 seemed to a lot of people like a good idea, and to other people it seemed like a bad idea, and other people were unsure. But it wasn't clear that it was a practical idea. It wasn't clear that it could have any consequences in the world. There's this great anecdote about a Polish journalist whose name I'm blanking on, who knew Lenin in Krakow, liked him, used to play chess with him. And then he says, you know, uh, <laughs> I was blown away. You know, I thought he is the most impractical man in the world. He's a very smart, cultured man, but he's just this dogmatic Marxist. And then this man turns into the leader of a great state and a great revolution. And I thought my entire judgment of like, the nature of reality was wrong. Um, and that was, would have been like a, a not uncommon pre-World War I sense of Marxism, Marxism, right? Yep. That, that's like an interesting idea. You can play around with it. It's like a, you know, but it, it, it didn't have any immediate practice. And the Bolshevik Revolution, of course, places Marxism as a practical force that, pe that splits the socialist movement. It splits discourse, right? And it splits in often splits the same person ambivalently both ways, right? So that one of the things you find as the 20th century goes on is that the same people can be both pro and anti-Marxist, pro and anti-Bolshevik. And by the way, we spoke about the centenary of the Bolshevik Revolution this year, but a few months later, of course, is the bicentenary of the birth of Karl Marx. And those two events, of course, are bring into question, again, this question, what is our relationship Platypus, to the meaning of this phenomenon of Marxism, the left, etc., in the totality of world history. Now, in general, the platypus focus, and I've had a little bit of tension here with Chris on this subject, tends to focus on the period 1917 to 1919. So I want like, to sort of extend the question of the sort of schematically, not sort of to teach a lesson about what one should think, but to sort of think about the evolution of the problem, right? So I think that, that the first period, right, that one has to consider, the sort of classic period, which to a large extent we study, is there's obviously a moment right after the Bolshevik Revolution where it seems plausible to believe that at least a pan-European revolution might be on the agenda. And when that fails, right, one then has to ask like a, a kind of complicated series of struggles open up, right? And then as a result of what in retrospect are clearly a series of defeats, you have um, a situation that could not really have been anticipated by 19th century socialists where you have this Stalinist dictatorship in the Soviet Union claiming to represent socialism. You then have like Nazi dictatorship and fascist dictatorships in Europe opposing it and representing the counter-revolution. But again, a, a different type of counter-revolution from what people had been used to in the 19th century. And the representatives of this sort of, uh, I mean, for Platypus certainly, the, the best responses to this sort of classic period of the crisis of Marxism are well represented in our reading group text, you know, basically 
Trotskyism, the Frankfurt School, but also Lukács, the early Lukács, or the right, you know, the history and class consciousness. These are all like trying to think about these fundamentally new historical phenomena, right? That and trying to understand them. And then there's a, 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 another period, right? An even darker period, right? Which is essentially the period of the Second World War and after. Um, and there's a, there's a kind of mid 20th century moment, and this was sort of talked about like in the 1956 with Adorno and Horkheimer. And then there's of course the, the, the catastrophe of the Second World War. The catastrophe is a, a physical catastrophe, but also a huge moral and, and historical catastrophe. And it's a very ambivalent problem because the, by the time the Second World War happened, the possibility for um, revolutionary Marxism basically seemed to have been lost, right? You know, Trotsky had his hopes in one country or another, in France or Spain or this or that. But, but, but by 3940, they basically had all not panned out. So that what Marxism was represented with in a concrete form was basically the Soviet Union. And it was dealing with a, with a, with a fascism that, was, that seemed like a, a new and fundamentally more malevolent form of bourgeois rule. And so the Second World War was a fundamentally ideologically disorienting phenomenon to anybody who tried to think critically about the relationship of history to society and Marxism. However you thought about it. I mean, I think for the Frankfurt School, for Trotskyists. Um, and it did not repeat the effect of the First World War, which had a radicalizing effect, mm. right? The effect of the Second World War was fundamentally conservative in its aftermath. There was not, I mean, there was an upsurge of you know, French and Italian communism and so forth, but basically any radical impulses were quickly directed into a fairly safe form. So it, it created a kind of chasm in the history of sort of radical thought, right? Um, this period of the 40s, 50s, etc. And, and the other thing that, that has to sort of be seen in retrospect is if, if the Nazis, for example, fascism was a revolt against the Enlightenment, the two victorious contestants of the Second World War who then fell out with each other both seemed to represent distorted fragments of the Enlightenment, right? The, the, the values claimed by the United States and Soviet Union were not counter-Enlightenment values. They were like socialism and democracy. And you can say, well, they didn't really represent socialism. They didn't really represent democracy. But they weren't like speaking the language of explicit racism, right? That was not like, even though the US had Jim Crow, that was not the way the US was selling itself. That was not the way the people who chose the West thought that they were choosing that part of the West that represented some enlightenment values. The people who chose the East thought they were choosing it because in some sense it represented progressive values. Two choices of freedom. 
two choices of freedom that were both choices of non-freedom, right? Now, because of a kind of generational hiatus, then the moment at which the sort of the new left comes in, I think that when you think about the new left, you have to think about the new left as deeply traumatized by this previous history, which was their parents' previous history. I mean, Germany is no doubt an extreme example of this phenomenon, but the same would be true of other countries. It would be true of the United States, it would be true. And one of the things that the New Left did was it tried to work out the earlier history. Mm -hmm. but, it, but I think you have to say it lost its nerve intellectually. And it, it, couldn't, it couldn't get to the core of how to think about this previous history. And so it, in many ways, unconsciously ended up repeating the same pattern, right? So that where you had Stalinism before, it turned against Stalinism, but only in its Russian form and then became Maoist. And then after becoming Maoist, it went in some anti-communist direction. And there were, that's one thing that happened um, in sort of the high 60s. But the other thing that happened in sort of the, the 60s and 70s and then became clear by the 80s is that a certain conception of what the left was that had been kind of taken for granted in the first half of the 20th century disintegrated. And it disintegrated, and this is sort of where the problem of identity politics comes from. And it's also the problem of sort of the, the plural revolutionary subject. In other words, what, what seemed to have happened was that the faith in the working class no longer seemed to make sense. The assumption of Marxists that the best bet for socialist revolution would be the most advanced parts of the capitalist world, right? Which is not true that they wrote off the less advanced, but the assumption is that obviously the more advanced capitalism is, the better the resources and the better the chance you have of struggling for socialism. And in the 60s, you started having people inverting this logic, right? The logic was, well, the only places that, that, that there have actually been revolutions are the weak links in the capitalist world, right? Russia, China, Cuba. I mean, these are not the, this is not Germany, the United States, Britain. And so people started thinking, like, maybe it's only places that, capitalism hasn't really settled in deeply where you can have socialism. And obviously the long-term consequences of this theory, which I think were wrong in its inception, but the long-term consequence of this thinking is actually fundamentally anti-Marxist because, I mean, the further development of the 20th century has shown that the peasantry is not a class with a future, right? Um, that, that if there is, you know, hope for a revolution in a country like India, it's going to be in, among the workers in Bangalore, not the peasants 100 kilometers away who are in these stagnating villages. Um, and so I think that, that then you have to say there's this transition point, and I think the 60s and 70s represent this transition point with the new left, in that the new left, unlike the left that often succeeded it, did maintain some sense of the historical importance of the Bolshevik Revolution in terms of its memory. 
It tried to connect itself with the memory of the Bolshevik Revolution. I would say that then, say, since the 80s or whatever, with the recession of the new left, with the kind of triumph of neoliberalism, there's been a gradual erosion and then perhaps a, a, a kind of catastrophic decline after 89-91 in the sense that there is a validity to that memory, right? So what you find nowadays is, I would say, that there is on the right, but that right-wing argument has been accepted by for the the old social democratic argument that the, or anarchists, that the Bolsheviks were these authoritarians, that the whole Bolshevik revolution was a bad idea. And that the lesson of the Bolshevik revolution is don't have a Bolshevik revolution. Don't, don't have, have a, a Leninist party. party. Don't have a Leninist party. Don't, even, even the lesson, you know, uh, how to change the world without seizing power, right? <laughs> um, which would have just totally perplexed a, a, a socialist in the 19th century. Um, so that's the, the sort of most extreme response. On sort of the far left, you still have like various sectarian groups which claim to uphold the legacy of the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, but sort of, again, as time passes, one wonders whether there is any, any real historical memory embedded in that. I mean, I don't know if there are any people still around who actually probably maybe a few super centenarians, right? I mean, I, I met one very old person in the 90s who actually remembered as a child, a 14-year-old, the Bolshevik Revolution, but he was of Adorno's generation, mm. right? So, so the, the, I think that we face a crisis of memory with regard to the Bolshevik Revolution. And I think one of the ways that that crisis of memory has happened is that with the recession of Stalinism, so that the question of the memory of Bolshevik Revolution is no longer a which side are you on? Do you support the Soviet Union or not? Right? There has been a kind of sort of sentimentality vis-a-vis -vis the Bolshevik Revolution of, yes, this was an example, another example of the resistance of the masses in history. Hmm. Right? And... So I think that, that, I mean, maybe we should open up for questions, but I, I want to conclude that I think right now we are facing a profound question of the relevance of the memory of the Bolshevik Revolution. That it, it, it does not play the same role that it played 30 years ago, even in its fossilized forms. Um, I think... It's not even a boogeyman. It's not even a boogeyman, which in some ways is good, which in some ways allows one to sort of historicize it, to sort of remove oneself from a sense of sort of moral passion or guilt, because there's a way in which people either supported or opposed the revolution based upon a sense of guilt. So we don't have to do that. Um, but it also can, I think, make the problem of the revolution very abstract. And I think that the other issue, um, obviously, that is raised is we, 
we, you know, right now, and there's been a discussion earlier in the conference about like a crisis of neoliberalism, right? And tonight. Yeah, tonight. Yeah. So if one looks at the sort of the, not the tiny world of the left, but the sort of real world of Trump, of Trump and so forth. <laughs> so seen from a kind of world historical perspective, there are two things that are, of course, striking about the world. One is that we live in a global capitalist world, which is characterized by uh, private ownership of the means of production, et cetera, which is highly unequal, and that there do not seem to be any significant political forces that threaten uh, to expropriate the bourgeoisie anywhere. Uh, as there were or seemed to be in much of the 20th century. Right, Islamism does not threaten. Them. Right, so, so when we speak about Islamism as a threat to the West, Islamism is a, not a threat to capitalism. Right. It, it's a threat only in the sense that it disorganizes global capitalism. Russia, on the fringes. On the fringes. Russia is a threat, perhaps, you know. So the, the, and the other aspect of global capitalism is that the persistence of the nation state as a political form. And um, we, we lived through a period quite recently from the 90s on where a certain type of bourgeois ideology while recognizing the persistence of the nation state could act as though it was gradually disappearing. That's right? especially true of the pre-World War I world. Like the pre-World War I world was also a great deal more cosmopolitan than we can clearly remember. The 20th century is really the century of the nation state as we experience it. And that comes out of Stalinism, the quarantining of Russia, it comes out of, obviously it comes out of World War I, most clearly it comes out of decolonization, the, the collapse of empires into nation states. It comes out of all these things that are actually quite new. Um, well, yeah. so, so what, what I was pointing out, to, I was actually thinking of the more recent period from uh -huh. the 1990s on, uh -huh. where there's this sense of, you know, the European Union, international law, the creation of a kind of post-historical world where the, the disappearance of the nation state, right? The, or not the, the actual disappearance, but the sense that perhaps the, the, the problem of the nation state... Transnational bodies are more Right, important. transnational bodies, etc., are, are sort of disciplining the, the, the potentially chaotic aspects of global capitalism, right? So I think that that the paradox that we're stuck with in terms of the memory of the 20th century is that the, the fundamentally, that, that the memory of the Bolshevik Revolution has been reduced to part of the chaos of the 20th century, yeah. right? That it's yeah. part of the long detour, right? There uh -huh. is this neoliberal narrative that the 20th century from 14 to 89 or 91 was this long detour that was overcome, and that the Bolshevik Revolution, like fascism, like the Two World Wars, was part of this chaos in which bourgeois society sort of broke down, went crazy, but then sort of... Found itself again. But then it found itself again. And what there is now, I think, is this sort of awareness that, that 
any stability that seemed to be being created was an illusion. And there's a sense of potential disintegration. And the, I think... That, as a side note, right, as a side note, in the history of Platypus, we experienced this because supposedly the 90s, this triumphal narrative, was diverted by 9-11, not really by 9-11, by George W. Bush. Right. And then potentially set right again by Obama, and now definitely contradicted by Trump. So there was this kind of, and you know, Hillary Clinton was like, yeah, let's get back to the 90s. But of course, that's not really possible. But there is a kind of sense of, well, if only it wasn't for the neocons and the Islamists and the war on terror that we could have carried on with the 90s. And Obama struggled to do that, and yes, under disadvantageous conditions of the economic crisis, but now, again, we're back to the old shit. Right? Trump is seen as like a return to George W. Bushism, even though he's not that. Um, so there is this kind of lingering 90s, it's, and it's going to be with us for a while. Like, there's going to be nostalgia for neoliberalism for a long time. Right. So, so what I was trying to do here was sort of sketch in a fairly very short span of time a sort of sketch of, of sort of some different stages, which could be broken down more, in sort of the problem of how the historical memory of the Bolshevik Revolution persists and affects the memory of the left and how it thinks about the left. But maybe we should open up the questions because I... I wanted to... Uh, how, how are we doing for time? We started... We Four, okay, so we're good. So here's, here's some stuff to chew on. So we talked about a lot, but let me, let me get down to brass tacks a little bit more concretely. Trotsky. So I had some Trotsky quotes that I was unable to integrate into my talk, so I'm just going to give them to you instead. Um, so I have three quotes from Trotsky. I'll start with Stalinism and Bolshevism from 1937. These are extended quotes, but they're, you know, he's pretty pithy, not too meandering. He says, is it true that Stalinism represents the legitimate product of Bolshevism, as all reactionaries maintain, as Stalin himself avows, as the Mensheviks, the anarchists, and certain left doctrinaires considering themselves Marxist believe? We have always predicted this, they say. Having started with the prohibition of other socialist parties, the repression of the anarchists, and the setting up of the Bolshevik dictatorship in the Soviets, the October Revolution can only end in the dictatorship of the bureaucracy. Stalin is the continuation and also the bankruptcy of Leninism. The flaw in this reasoning begins in the tacit identification, Trotsky says, of Bolshevism, the October Revolution, and the Soviet Union, that in fact these are not identical things. He says, the historical process of the struggle of hostile forces is replaced by the evolution of Bolshevism in a, in a vacuum. Bolshevism, he says, however, is only a political tendency closely fused with the working class, but not identical with it. To represent the process of degeneration of the Soviet state as the evolution of pure Bolshevism is to ignore social reality in the name of only one of its elements, isolated by pure logic. And then he continues, Bolshevism, in any case, never identified itself with either the October Revolution or with the Soviet state that issued from it. Bolshevism considered itself as one of the factors of history, its conscious factor, a very important but not decisive one, he said. We never sinned on historical subjectivism, he says. We saw the decisive factor 
on the existing basis of productive forces in the class struggle, not only on a national scale, but on an international scale. Right? In other words, they banked everything on the world revolution. That's the bottom line. Um, so it's not because they wanted the revolution. It's because they thought the world revolution was possible. All right. In the history of the Russian Revolution, written seven years earlier in 1930, this is how Trotsky put it. It says, the most indubitable feature of a revolution is the direct interference of the masses in historical events. In ordinary times, the state, be it monarchical or democratic, elevates itself above the nation, and history is made by specialists in that line of business, kings, ministers, bureaucrats, parliamentarians, and journalists. But as those crucial mo at those crucial moments when the old order becomes no longer endurable to the masses, the masses break over the barriers excluding them from the political arena, sweep aside their traditional representatives, and create by their own interference the initial groundwork for a new regime. Whether this is good or bad, we leave to the judgment of moralists. We ourselves will take the facts as they are given by the objective course of development, the history of a revolution is for us, first of all, a history of the forcible entrance of the masses into the realm of rulership over their own destiny. In a society that is seized by revolution, classes are in conflict. It is perfectly clear, however, that the changes introduced between the beginning and the end of a revolution in the economic bases of society and its social substratum of classes are not sufficient to explain the course of the revolution itself, which can be overthrown in a short interval which can overthrow, excuse me, in a short interval, age-old institutions, create new ones, and again overthrow them. The dynamic of revolutionary events is di directly determined by swift, intense, and passionate changes in the psychology of classes which have already formed themselves before the revolution. The point is that society does not change its institutions as need arises, the way a mechanic changes its instruments. On the contrary, society actually takes the institutions which have hung upon it which hang upon it as given once and for all. For decades, the oppositional criticism is nothing more than a safety valve for mass dissatisfaction, a condition of the stability of the social structure. Such in principle, for example, was the significance of the social democratic criticism of society before World War I. Entirely exceptional conditions, independent of the will of persons and parties, are necessary in order to tear off from discontent the fetters of conservatism, and bring the masses to insurrection. The swift changes of mass views and moods in an epoch of revolution thus derive not from flexibility and mobility of man's mind, but just the opposite, from its deep conservatism. The chronic lag of ideas and relations behind new objective conditions, right up to the moment when the latter crash over people in the form of a catastrophe, is what creates in a period of revolution that leaping movement of ideas and passions which seemed to the police mind a mere result of the activity of demagogues. Um, finally, the last bit that I want to quote from is the Lessons of October. This is from the conclusion of the Lessons of October. It says, in our country, Russia, both in 1905 and 1917, the Soviets of workers' deputies grew out of the movement itself as its natural organizational form as a at a certain stage of struggle. But the young European parties, who have more or less accepted Soviets as a doctrine, this is in the Third International, and as a principle, always run the danger of treating Soviets as a fetish, as some self-sufficient factor of a revolution. He says, without a party, apart from a party, over the head of a party, 
or with a substitute for a party, the proletarian revolution cannot conquer. That is the principal lesson of the past decade. So this is between 1914 and 1924. It is true that the English trade unions may become a mighty lever of the proletarian revolution. They may take the place of workers' Soviets under certain conditions. They can fill such a role, however, not apart from a communist party, and certainly not against a communist party, but only on the condition that communist influence becomes the decisive influence over the unions. Um, consciousness, premeditation, and planning play a far smaller role in bourgeois revolutions than they are destined to play and already do play in proletarian revolution. In the former instance, the motive force of the revolution was also furnished by the masses, but the latter, the masses, were much less organized and much less conscious than at the present time. The leadership remained in the hands of different sections of the bourgeoisie, and the latter had at its disposal wealth, education, and all the organizational advantages connected with them, the cities, the universities, the press, etc. The bureaucratic monarchy defended itself in a hand-to-mouth manner, probing in the dark and then acting. The bourgeoisie would bide its time and seize a favorable moment when it could profit from the movement of the lower classes, throw its whole social weight into the scale, and so seize state power. By contrast, the proletarian revolution is precisely distinguished by the fact that the proletariat, in the person of its vanguard, acts in it not only as the main offensive force, but also as the guiding force. The part played by bourgeois revolutions in bourgeois revolutions of the economic power of the bourgeoisie, by its education, by its municipalities and universities, is a part which can be filled in a proletarian revolution only by the political party of the proletariat. The proletariat has nothing but the party, whereas the bourgeoisie had all these civil society institutions. Much has been spoken and written of of the necessity of Bolshevizing the Communist International. He says, this is a task that cannot be disputed or delayed. It is made particularly urgent after the cruel lessons of Bulgaria and of Germany in 1923. But Bolshevism is not a doctrine, i.e. it's not merely a doctrine, but a system of revolutionary training for proletarian uprising. What is the Bolshevization of communist parties? It is giving them such a training and effecting such a selection of the leading staff as would prevent them from drifting when the hour for their October strikes. And then he ends with this quotation, that is the whole of Hegel and the wisdom of books and the meaning of all philosophy. So may I respond briefly? Yeah, go ahead. So When you it, hear this, what is it? It stirs my heart, you know, like certain pieces of music. The problem, <laughs> though... Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Uh Uh, Actually, two. Yeah. Uh Okay. Um, First, there are two problems. Chris, I had two problems with your presentation. Uh One problem is that you never mentioned Soviets till you started uh, quoting Trotsky. Until I said don't fetishize them. Uh, well, yes, but uh, <laughs> you say, well, Trotsky said, don't fetishize them because they were so important that people started fetishizing them. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, uh-huh. in that sense, we, you cannot avoid an absolutely crucial and central uh, moment. And what really made uh, October different from February uh-huh. was not the party. 
The body didn't play that big role, which was later attributed to it by Stalinist interpretation of history. And the party started playing central and crucial role about late 1918 or maybe uh, early 1919. And that's uh, a totally different Civil story, but we just cannot go into historic details, how it was happening and why. But the point is that it was exactly about the Soviets, which yes, were Bolshevized ideologically, but they were not identical with the party. And the Soviets emerged out of the February Revolution. Yes. So yes. that's it's a very important trajectory that the February Revolution was a proletarian revolution. And it produced Soviets, which in the end of the day produced October. And Bolsheviks were exactly great politicians, especially Lenin was a great politician, because he understood that dynamic and that momentum. While many others, not only Bolsheviks, but other Bolsheviks didn't. So he had to fight a real struggle within his own party, which was not ready for the revolution. That's another interesting aspect of the history, uh, which is very well de and very detailed, um, in, in a very detailed way discussed in a book by Wadlen Logan, published about, I think, 10 years ago, which shows that uh, the whole idea of a Bolshevik party being an instrument already prepared, right. and already made for the revolution, right. before the revolution was totally wrong. It was exactly the other way around. Then there was a long and uh, a serious struggle uh, you know, which continued for a few months for Lenin and Trotsky and Lunachevsky and a few others with Stalin wavering and others re actually resisting that to make Bolsheviks uh, lead uh, their prizing which was already made. So that's, that's not, was, it was not only July day but it was also October. Mm -hmm. So that's one point. Uh, the second point is uh, about, uh, which is very important also for the, for, for the rest, is uh, about Bonapartism. Uh -huh. Because the way you interpret Bonapartism, I think it doesn't fit anything in my mind, to be honest. Because within Marxist theory, there are two ways you can interpret Bonapartism. One way, uh, which you can find in Marx and sometimes in Lenin, uh, is to present Bonapartism as a kind of specific rule, which is kind of balancing between classes. Mm. So a government which is uh, trying to uh, uh, design its own rule as an autonomous, uh, uh, autonomous force, mm -hmm. balancing between classes and trying to use different classes against each other, and thus uh, kind of muddling through with its own agenda. Mm -hmm. uh, and by the way, in that sense, yes, Kerensky uh, uh, was a Bonapartist, mm -hmm. but he was a failed Bonapartist because uh, now we're coming to the other definition of Bonapartism, which is Bonapartism being a specific stage of a revolutionary process. Uh, uh -huh. So in that sense, uh, Kerensky's Bonapartism came too early uh -huh. because there were no conditions for a Bonapartist state uh, because the revolution was still going up, uh, it was still in, in, in the session. Because Bonapartism appears when it comes uh, to the point where the new elite already emerges and has to stabilize the situation as also kind of finishing the revolution and acquiring certain characteristics of the old regime, but at the same time trying to retain certain uh, achievements of the revolution. When? Uh, well, let's say Stalinism was perfect Bonapartism. Stalinism definitely was Bonapartism. What about under Lenin? Hmm? What about under Lenin? Lenin defined Bolshevik rule as Jacobin. Yeah. And I think that's exactly correct. Huh. If you're going through phases, if, if, if you can imagine revolution, well, okay, it's a little bit uh, kind of going too psychological, okay, but yeah. anyhow, let, let's take it for granted. <laughs> uh, I, I just cannot go into detail. 
But the point is that you see all major revolutions going through the same phases, starting even with the, with the Hussite uprising in, in, in Bohemia, in, in Czech lands in the 15th century, which I think was the very first Bourgeois revolution, or early, as well as they use the term early Bourgeois revolution, uh -huh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in Angus, uh, yeah, understanding, uh -huh, yeah. of course, not in Soviet historical uh -huh. terms. Yeah, okay, so finally, uh -huh. um, so in that sense, Bonaparte is, is, uh, is not identical in Bourgeois rule, in that sense, what, that's right. what, what I think. And finally, speaking about uh, memories, uh, the problem of memories is absolutely essential for Russians, because if you, now we have this uh, uh, 100 years of uh, our anniversary, and it leads not only to debates in Russia, it leads to furious debates which show that it's not only that nothing is forgotten, but nothing ended. Hmm. Uh, it's only the beginning. It's only the beginning. Everybody sees what is, uh, both the, the right and the left, they see the current situation in Russia as a restoration after the revolution. Hmm. That's uh, the understanding in the Russian society. It's like, well, okay, France, 19, uh, say, uh, 43. Uh, 18, sorry, sorry. 18. France, France, 1843. So, so the current uh, elites in Russia, they see themselves as uh, the elites of the restoration. That's their ideology. And uh, that's how they see the, the, the anniversary of the revolution, saying, well, okay, we have to overcome the revolution. Right. It's not used to, to finally say it's over, it's not. And recently I was present in a debate uh, where the, the official, official um, uh, point of view was represented by Archbishop Russian Orthodox Archbishop from Geneva, though, from, from West Europe, from Geneva. And the guy was very uh, aggressive because he said, finally, it's the time to say we have to finish off enlightenment. Enlightenment was the cause of everything. French Revolution was the cause of everything. We have to finish off everything like that. So, democracy, and another terrible idea, has to be destroyed. What is happening in Russia is very important because it's the, end, the beginning of the end of all these stupid, terrible things like Jean-Jacques Rousseau with his uh, enlightenment and everything. It all, it all has to be destroyed. And then there were others who said, okay, nothing is finished, the revolution will come back. Ah. Good. All right, questions. So I, I, I wanted to respond to. Let's open it. Can I just respond to. Uh, can we maybe questions. Questions. Okay. What about this guy back there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Okay, I want to strongly support the, the intervention of our Russian government. Uh, I will include a historic dimension. Uh, I think uh, it, 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 it also uh, presented uh, this lack of ideology. Uh, it's presented it, the first proletarian revolution was, in my opinion, very strong. And you have to point this and not to play this uh, down. It was a, a little bang uh, mm -hmm. but it was the first proletarian revolution. Mm. And it's important to stress this, mm -hmm. exactly of this role of these uh, Soviets. Mm. And it's important to stress this because of this 
najše naočeke tati fantasies, like Lukács Tarotera. To make a relative listen to this. Party has an important role, but party is not a proletarian. And party is not the incorporation of proletarian interest. It's very important to express this. And therefore, if you say the first revolution is Bolshevik revolution, you're wrong. It's the second. And the second question, because of defeats, and we have a lot of defeats, but I think we have a victory too. We should rely on. And this is the fighting down the fascism. And we we all rely on this victory, which is 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 achieved by different forces. And perhaps it's not wrong to say there was at least at least two wars in the same time: a proletarian war against fascism, and then in a imperialist war about domination. And so it, it, it's very difficult to, to put them apart in different places, but you will every every place you will find these two wars fighting at the same time. It's, it's, it's very important to, to, to keep this in mind, to different this, and especially you see there's a there's a, a anti-fascist war mm. and a victory, mm. and it was a victory. Mm. Had also consequences in revolution in China, whatever it's revolution in Yugoslavia, whatever it nearly come to to victory in Greek, whatever the stories they are telling. But in the fight of the proletariat against the fascism, there was a victory in Yugoslavia, in China, in Greek, and then, yeah. Father is we didn't have we didn't have a victory about capitalism the world wide, but it is a necessary victory to fight fascism down. Especially if we see what today's developments in which directions they go today. So let me just say about this. Okay, so if we take the Paris Commune and we take the struggle against fascism then precisely what's lost is the party. You know, in other words, the struggle against fascism doesn't need the party. It needs the Stalinist state. And the Paris Commune also didn't need the party. Um, now, of course, Marx and Engels, what they thought of the Paris Commune was that it would have been better off if it had been better organized and if it had marched on Versailles, etc. Right? In other words, if, if it had a political leadership capable of prosecuting the revolution. Um, on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, again, you don't need a party to fight fascism. The so what you need the victory, is... You the victory know, over fascism was based upon the superior material resources of the Western powers and the Soviet Union combined. I mean, that's a military victory. I'm not... I'm not denying the importance of that or the desirability of that. 
But it what wasn't... What about the partisans, though? In other words, if we... The, yeah, what about the partisans? The, yes, but, That's but, really wait, the wait issue. Wait a minute. Let, let, let's, be, let's be clear about... People things. prefer the Spanish Civil War and the partisans the, against the, the Nazis to the Russian Revolution. The, the, they do. All of the partisans, For a all of the heroism of the partisans, of the resistance, would not have succeeded without the industrial power of the Soviet Union and the United States. It, it fundamentally, the Second World War did That's not right. have the radicalizing political consequences, for example, that were hoped uh, for by Trotsky. Mm. I think that there is a, there is a this, because leftists want to see possibilities in terms that, that this is, that, that the problem is the Second World War basically, overall, had a fundamentally conservatizing effect, precisely because Stalinism and bourgeois democracy triumphed. Prevailed. Prevailed. And that both of those effectively, by their military victory, had a conservatizing effect. Now, the Second World War also triggered over decolonization. We were talking about, for example, the question of Bonapartism. We're talking about, uh. like... So I actually think, and here I'm going to be, like, orthodox... I think that there is a fundamental difference between, say, a Nasser, a Ben-Gurion, or a Nehru, nationalist leaders who all spoke a kind of secular, socialist, political language, and, for example, a Mao Zedong or a Stalin, who are much more bloody than any of those, right? I'm not, that's not, it's not about brutality, but I think that the nature of the Soviet and Chinese states, the class basis of them, and the expropriation of the bourgeoisie made them a different type of actor in world history. And I think that the disappearance of those states, the fact that those states seem to have been an accidental interregnum in terms of the triumph of global capitalism, has to affect our understanding of the meaning of the Bolshevik Revolution. I also, I, I have a lot of problems with Chris's understanding of, Bolshev, of, of Bonapartism. I do not think that all revolutions go through the same cycle. Yeah. Um, and I think that the analogy, by the way, of Jacobin and Bonaparte mm. that Trotsky uses vis-a-vis -vis the Russian Revolution is very problematic. I think one of the problems is that because of what objectively could be seen as a failure and defeat, the Bolsheviks had to reenact a role of Jacobin. In other words, if social democracy had properly triumphed, Jacobinism would have seemed to have been overcome by social democracy as something better, right? Not that the social democrats were anti-Jacobin, but it's the tragedy of the Bolshevik Revolution that it seems like the repetition of Jacobinism. And the fact that many of the people who then embraced various forms of Marxism in the 20th century were basically motivated by in the same sort of way as the people who in the 19th century would have been sympathetic to Jacobinism. That's, that's an ideological problem. It's a symptom of regression. It's not, it's not that it was a great thing that, I mean, it's understandable in a certain sense, but another level, it's a problem. And it's a, it's a very deep and complicated problem that I'm not sure I know how to disentangle. I want to just, uh, the point about Bonapartism, and then we'll take other questions that I wanted to raise uh, with respect to um, Boris's question, or intervention. Um, I would say, yes, Bonapartism is the stage of a revolutionary process, but I would say we're still living in the revolution. In other words, if, like, if from Marx's perspective, 
the French Revolution both continues and does not continue in 1848, meaning the 1789 revolution continues but does not continue in 1848. So I would say we're still living in a revolutionary process, but that that revolutionary process uh, as a bourgeois democratic revolutionary process that always has these moments of Jacobinism. And so even when people are done exercising the ghost of uh, Bolshevism, they still address the specter of Jacobinism. Uh, so like, you know, Jay Bernstein, right, uh, and, uh, you know, complained about the Tea Party. He's a Hegel scholar and former Frankfurt School scholar. He wrote an op-ed for the New York Times saying the very angry Tea Party. And he said, well, Hegel told us about the dangers of Jacobinism, and that's what we see with the Tea Party. Which shows right? cranky, Martin. Well, that these, yeah, people can get cranky, but I think that it's still there, right? And so I think that there's one revolutionary process, and it is radicalized around the time of the birth of capitalism, namely the French Revolution is a kind of a radical version of the bourgeois revolution. And Bonapartism, for Marx, it doesn't occur... First of all, it's Louis Bonaparte. It's not Napoleon Bonaparte. So tragedy farce, first of all, there's a big difference between Napoleon Bonaparte and Louis Bonaparte, a huge difference. And that difference is capitalism. And so I would maintain, because I think this also goes to the Frankfurt School, why they had this theory of the authoritarian state and state capitalism and the administered state and all this stuff that came up last night, um, is that they're trying to follow Marx on this question of well, what happens to the revolution in capitalism. It becomes beset by this problem of Bonapartism, which also besets things like the American Civil War, which is why you can have new leftists saying that the American Civil War is bad because it's the birth of the imperial state in the United States, which is true, but it's also only one side of it. So Bonapartism is there, and I think that Marx's only lesson coming out of 1848, the lesson of Bonapartism, is the necessity of the dictatorship of the proletariat, meaning that it's basically like, look, capitalism produces a need for Bonapartism, and that need is going to be met one way or the other, and it's going to be met either harshly or softly. In other words, FDR is a Bonapartist. Right? This is the Frankfurt School. They see fascism, Stalinism, New Dealism, it's all Bonapartism. Frankly, so did Trotsky. Trotsky also thought of FDR as a Bonapartist. Right? So, again, there's long precedence for treating this term in this way. Um, it, that it's not just... You could say that the capitalist state, ever since capitalism, the state has had to do this. Because you can't just have the bourgeoisie leading through civil society well, anymore. Uh, one, one of the things that I found interesting, just a historical note, is that but the probably no intelligentsia, the Russian intelligentsia was among, even more than the French intelligentsia of the pre-World War I period, was extremely well-read in the history of the Russian Revolution. It's an interesting... Kind oh, the of, French Revolution. On the history of the French Revolution. Yeah. It was like probably no group of people in Europe had, were more likely to have studied the French Revolution. Than and, and not just leftists. And that's a fascinating little historical detail. All right. I think there's time. Go ahead. I think, yeah, we, we're going to have the um, critical theory workshop in here starting now. And then 
and um, at, the, at the time that was put on the calendar, the refugee workshop, sticking to that, but it's going to be in another room, which is... Yes. Oh, parallel. Okay. Yeah. Um, All right. That's okay. In the track uh, eight in, in the second floor, I will... So what is the choice? There. Refugee crisis um, or critical theory? And critical... So I think this is over. Okay. And yeah. critical...